This season of the 10A Podcast is dedicated to Jason Rayner, Susan Clabby, Adam Webb, and Patrick Erlinson. If you want to be a premier cop, then you need to learn from the premier police training company in the land. Of course, I'm talking about street cop training. They've got dozens of instructors out in the field right now, sharing their expertise in narcotics, interdiction, report writing, first aid, mental health, case law, and just quality police work. And those aren't even all the topics. There's literally something for everybody. I've attended several classes myself, and I can tell you that these folks cannot miss. Dennis Benino, the owner, is doing massive things for the world of law enforcement and at a time when everyone else seems to be running away from it. Street cop training is literally the best in the business. Check out their private Instagram and join their law enforcement only Facebook group to get free trainings and then check out upcoming in-person and on-demand trainings at streetcop.com. You will not be disappointed. Did you know that in the years 2017 to 2018, the American obesity rate was over 42%. Did you further know that police officers are 25% more likely than the average American to die from obesity-related illnesses? These are diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and high blood pressure. So what do we do? Do we continue to stay victims to shift work and terrible nutrition options while going call to call? Or do we do something about it? Well, I decided to do something about it, and that's why I started working with Nick Wall Nutrition. Nick is one of less than 100 professional nutritionists in the entire United Kingdom and has worked with many professional athletes from soccer, rugby, cricket, and even Team Great Britain. And all of his plans are backed by pure scientific evidence. Eating the foods you love and losing weight doing it. No fad diets, no pills, no powders, and no god-awful detox teas. Nick is the real deal and was named Nutrition Specialist of the Year for the year 2019 to 2020. Check him out on Instagram at NickWallNutrition or NickWallNutrition.com and join Nick's team and change your life. The views and opinions expressed on the 108 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. They do not necessarily reflect an official policy or position. The 108 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. This week on the 108 podcast, The Calm in the Chaos with Nick Wilson. You leave the academy with this illusion of invulnerability. We can start to have an impact within our sphere of influence, in our peer groups, within our department. You know, in law enforcement, we've normalized abnormal events. And they realize that they are susceptible to the impact of trauma. It shatters the illusion. It breaks that illusion of invulnerability. I'll be fucked up if you can be right here. I do the same thing. I told you that I never would. I told you I changed. Even when I knew I never could. Know that I Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome back to the moment you thought would never come. Welcome to season two of the 108 Podcast. I am 
your host, as always, Officer Y, and I'm so happy to have you here. As I'm sure you could probably tell, things are a little different this year in uh, 10-8 land. New microphone, hopefully it sounds different to you. New recording setup, new episode layout. Um, I really hope you guys enjoy the changes. Special thanks, by the way, to Dave from the Hey My Man podcast for being the 10-8 podcast version of Johnny Gilbert, if you don't know who that is. I, I don't know what to tell you. He's the guy that did the, here's your host, Alex Trebek from uh, Jeopardy all those years. So anyway, let's uh, let's move on to what we came here to talk about. We did it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to understate that, um, but we did. We endured the summer. And what a fucking mess it was, wasn't it? I mean, since my last episode was published... I have been through the ringer as far as mental health and emotion and all this stuff. Um, you know, it really, uh, it took a toll on me. It did. I had a lot going on. Uh, just to put some perspective on it. June 23rd, a man that I consider uh, one of my best friends was shot at work. On July 5th, my sister fell unconscious following an asthma attack. And she ended up passing away on July 12th. Um, and then my friend that I spoke about moments ago from work that got shot, he ended up passing away from his uh, injuries on August 17th. Then on the same weekend, I had the 10-year anniversary of my mother's passing. I had my sister's celebration of life, and I also had uh, my best friend's viewing and funeral. So then from there, um, I had... On September 1st, one of my former training officers and partners passed away from COVID. It was just an absolutely terrible run. Um, And then, unfortunately, it was weird because immediately following these terrible, terrible things was the hope and promise of new beginnings. On September 4th, I moved in with my girlfriend as we started our lives together. And September 13th, I began my new police job. Um, But as I say, the past several months have caused me to really reflect on my own mental health, my own resiliency, and, you know, staying in the fight, so to speak. You know, believe it or not, throughout all of this, all these problems, all these terrible things that have happened, um, this is going to sound weird, and, and I hopefully, hopefully you guys understand, that I feel lucky. Um, you see, I've I've cultivated a very wonderful network of mental health voices amongst this 10-8 community. Uh, people like Nick Wilson, who, we're he- who we will hear from in a few moments. Jenna Romano, who we'll hear from next week. People like George and Stephanie Franek from Project 109, who I've talked to multiple times. Um, so I've had these people. I've also had this, this stoic philosophy that I've been practicing with and training with and trying to, you know... Um, you know, Amor Fati, I talk about it all the time, loving fate, whatever comes to you, dealing with it, and not only dealing with it, but loving it, and I'll tell you that, that is so hard to do when things are going to absolute shit in your life, so, you know, it is what it is, but um, it was very important to me, after dealing with all this and, and coming out on top, to um, give back, to start this run of episodes, this new season, as I called it, um, with a focus on mental health, because I'll tell you what, Through everything I was dealing with, talking to Nick, talking to Jenna, talking to my own counselors, um, it's what got me through. Um, I know it's not just me out there having problems, um, but hopefully you can take what I've gone through and and what I've learned from and grown from um, and apply it to yourself. And since I've been fortunate enough to have these connections, have these contacts with people, it was very important to me to share it 
with you, the people that ta- have taken the time out of their lives to listen to this dorky guy in Florida, you know, tell you his thoughts and ideas on the world. And all of this brings me to our topic today. You know, it's amazing what cops do, right? Uh, my mind instantly goes to the timeless Paul Harvey oration called Policeman. I'm sure you've heard it. I've, I've put it on several times. Um, in which he lays out completely all the amazing things that police officers can do. And he parallels them instantly with the harsh reality of all those things. We law enforcement officers, we bear a superhuman-esque mountain of responsibilities with mortal level of capabilities. You know, the feats we do, the trials and tribulations that we endure are not for the faint at heart. Uh, You know, we as a career are hurting for people. So whenever someone messages me and is like, oh, I always wanted to be a cop, then, you know, enthusiastically, I'm like, dude, come on, sign up, do it, stop thinking about it, blah, 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 blah. But the sad truth is, to quote Heraclitus, out of every 100 men, 10 shouldn't even be here. 80 are just targets, 9 are the real fighters, and we are lucky to have them for they make the battle. But the one, one is a warrior, and he will bring the others back. The truth is that not everyone can be a police officer, and not everyone should be a police officer. I remember being brand new. Uh, I was still in field training at the time, and my training officer kept calling me a coward. Which, you know, when you're a brand new cop, that's that's like, you know, that's a, that's a dirty, dirty word. You never want to be called that. Um, and the reason this happened was because I took a far more passive approach to a subject than he would have preferred, than he would have liked. And, um... That stuck with me. You know, I had issues, and I've, I've said this last year where I failed field training. Uh, ultimately, from that moment, that wasn't the moment I quit field training, but it I never recovered from it until later. But, you know, you fast forward several years. Uh, I'm on my own. I'm, I'm making a name for myself at the police department, doing a pretty good job. I'm not saying I'm a great cop, but, you know, whatever. So you fast forward a couple years, and um, now we're 15 minutes before I secure on night shift. It's like 3-something in the morning. Um... I had just put my laptop away at the main station and I'm driving to my precinct to secure and and drop my car off. Um, I don't even know. I don't even know the full circumstances, honestly, but I remember I was going from the main HQ to my precinct and I was getting ready to go home for the night and the alert tone drops and it's an active shooter at one of our um, apartment complexes. And at that moment... I had to make a decision because you see how the city was laid out where I was. I knew I was going to be first on scene. Unless somebody was like sitting in the parking lot, I was going to be first on scene. I just knew it. Um, But I had, you know, this was a very big integrity check. Probably the biggest integrity check I've had of my career. And I'm not talking integrity check like, oh, there's a dollar on the counter. Are you going to take it? No, this is, this is legitimate. I had the choice. Um, You see, let me, let me try to explain a little bit better. My laptop wasn't there. Uh, so that means the GPS on my laptop was not in my car at that time and it was a spare car. So it wasn't assigned to me. Basically I could have turned left and driven home and no one, no one would have known. Right. Or I could have turned right and I could have completed what I swore to do, swore my oath to do. And that's what I did. I turned right. I responded and I handled business. Ultimately, it wasn't an active shooter. It was a spoof or or like a swatting call or whatever. Um, And everything turned out to be just fine. But the point of this sidebar is, you know, in that moment, 
I had a decision. I was scared to be the first on scene of an active shooter. Um, you know, everyone thinks about it. We all train for it. We all prepare for it. But when it's actually that time, when it's go time, you're like, shit, you know, that's where, it, that's what makes you who you are. That's, that's it. You know, um, they always talk about character being what you do when no one's watching. And that, you know, that's what it was. Um, but the point of all of this is that cops get scared, you know, um, my story is very common amongst those in law enforcement. Uh, we're made to believe that cops aren't scared. They don't get nervous or worried at their job or scared of anything. They just go forward boldly. And that's not the case. I can tell you flatly that's not the case. Uh, most cops are too alpha to talk to you about that. But, you know, that's the platform I have here. So whatever. Any cop will tell you that things in this job scare them. If you can actually get them to break that shell, they're going to tell you that. Nelson Mandela once said... I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. And I mean, that's, that's what we have as police officers. That's how we are resilient. That's how we push forward. But with, what if all of that just goes to the side? What if we just can't do it anymore? And then as we transition to our home lives, we're unable to perform. And I mean, you know, we can't make decisions. We end up having problems at home. We have problems with our relationships, with our children, um, everything. What then? And why? Well, luckily, I was able to have a conversation with Mr. Nick Wilson of the Resiliency Project. And uh, lucky for you, he was willing to share that conversation uh, to the masses. So that's exactly what we're going to discuss. And uh, I look forward to it. You know, we are the calm and the chaos, but what happens we are when we are no longer able to be? Check it out. Can anybody hear me? Or am I talking to myself? My mind is running empty In this search for someone else Who doesn't look right through me It's all just static in my head Can anybody tell me why? I'm lonely like a satellite Cause tonight Once again, by Nick Wilson from the Resiliency Project. We talked to him last year. Um, absolutely an amazing, amazing person. If you haven't listened to his conversation, we've had uh, definitely go back. I think it was episode 30. Uh, Nick, welcome back. I'm really happy uh, we're able to come back on today. Thanks so much for having me, brother. Now, just to kind of give the Reader's Digest version, um, can you just give me a, an idea of your background, just so my listeners who haven't heard our conversation in the past uh, know who you are? Sure. My name is Nick Wilson. I was a police officer uh, and I medically retired, did injuries that I sustained uh, in the line of duty. But beyond that, I was uh, dealing with a lot of cumulative stress and trauma, untreated trauma that permeated throughout my career. And uh, after my life kind of fell apart because I 
didn't deal with the mental health issues that I was experiencing because of the stigma that prevented me from getting help and worrying so much about what others would think, um, my life, my life became unmanageable and unraveled. And at the end of the day, I, uh, I medically retired and I started a nonprofit organization that supports first responder mental health called the resiliency project. And we provide peer support. It's free, confidential and funding for treatment, recovery services, any treatment modality that we can provide someone in an effort to keep them alive and prevent suicide and blessed with an amazing team. And very grateful to be discussing these topics with you because you've definitely made mental health a, a priority. And so I'm very mm-hmm. grateful to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. And, and just for everybody listening, you know, I talk about mental health a lot whether it's on this, the podcast, or on the meme page, which is crazy to think about a meme page talking about mental health. But Nick is always my go-to. When people come to me and they have an issue going on, they're they're in distress, anything, even though it's, hey, I need some information, Nick is uh, part of the, the, the three-headed monster, I call it, uh, of mental health that between him, Jenna Rose, who will be on next week, and then Project 109, who I've partnered with several times, just great, great people doing great things. And it's so important to our community. And what we're going to talk about today, Nick, you know, we, we, when I say we first responders, law enforcement, go out there every night, every day uh, for 12 hours, whatever this, the length of your, your tour of duty is, and you save the world. Uh, you know, you get called to the worst day of people's lives. And we do so uh, pretty magnificently. Uh, you go out there and handle people's problems. But then when you go home, when you take off the, the Batman suit and the Batman bells and you get out of the Batman car, it all falls apart. Uh, so many times we've seen uh, families fall apart, uh, just issues that start drumming up, you know, from just life, just normal life things that, you know, your friend, the accountant, your friend that works at Denny's, they deal with. But for some, the exact same things you just handled out on the street, but when it happens at your home, Suddenly, uh, we don't know how to deal with it. And that's what uh, we're going to talk about today, Nick. Um, obviously, you said about your own personal life kind of, you know, hit rock bottom. Um, so going to lean on your expertise for that. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm grateful to be talking about these things. You brought up how much uh, an officer does throughout their shift and what happens when they come home and not being able to uh, manage I guess, the things that they start to experience when untreated trauma starts to permeate through their life. Obviously, with the Resiliency Project, people come to you, they reach out about things going on in their personal life. What are some of the things you guys, through the Resiliency Project, have, what are the most common things you fielded um, that come in? What What are some of the things? Sure. And thankfully, we have this, you know, an amazing team that are able to take these calls there are a lot of consistent themes, uh, I, and I would say in the last year, year and a half, um, one of the most common themes is, is what's going on in society today, the anti-police rhetoric, how that affects mental health, uh, external factors in society that influence internal decision-making within agencies. A lot of officers and deputies, law enforcement personnel around the country really feel unsupported. 
by their command staff. Mm-hmm. And that, that certainly impacts mental health when they're not supported by leadership. One of the things that I learned when I went to a trauma retreat was on a list of critical incidents or things that impact law enforcement mental health the most, such as, you know, uh, death of a colleague or being in an officer-involved shooting. One of the things on the top of the list is organizational betrayal, whether it's real or perceived. Mm-hmm. And so officers are dealing with decisions by command staff or disciplinary issues because the optics, quote, quote unquote, optics of a use of force might not look good, even if it's within policy. So officers are being oftentimes, depending on where they are, discouraged to use force, all of these factors. But beyond that, it's it's really interesting that warriors, I mean, we're talking like career cops, um, detectives, people on, you know, tactical teams, SWAT teams, who are so squared away and thrive in their professional life, but in their personal life, can't figure out, number one, what's wrong with them. They don't know how to, at times, identify what they're going through and or how to fix it. And when you look at someone who is an accomplished law enforcement officer, who's out there putting cases on, you know, criminal offenders or, uh, you know, solving complex cases or on these tactical teams, you know right away when you're talking to them the kind of warriors that they are. But when they're off duty, sometimes they can't make up their mind as to where they're going to eat, plan a dinner with the family, uh, plan an activity with the family. They lose oftentimes because of untreated trauma and the biological roller coaster that they go through with hypervigilance and the ups and downs. They just, we keep seeing how much these cops are completely depleted at the end of the day or their work week. And so making decisions oftentimes that are sometimes just very simple decisions becomes uh, something that can become overwhelming. And so trying to help them understand how to come back from trauma, how to navigate the complexities of trauma and getting them to understand that it's okay to not be okay, normalizing mental health with them and getting them to accept that what they're going through is not abnormal. It's a normal response. It's a normal reaction to these abnormal events. You know, in law enforcement, we've normalized abnormal events. Mm -hmm. And so when you get someone who's absolutely depleted from a psychological standpoint, physiological, emotional standpoint, this burnout, the fatigue, and everything that comes with the uniqueness of first responder trauma, it makes life very challenging at times. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and I I talk to different uh, LEO spouses and they're, um, I, and me being the son of a law enforcement officer, I mean, he retired when I became like of age of reason and recognition, but you know, you see that, um, 
a lot of times these law enforcement officers, when they, when they take it all off, uh, it's, and, and I'm speaking for myself as well. It's kind of a different personality. Um, you know, you gotta really gotta dial up the, the type a when you're on duty. Like that's, that's a whole part of it. Um, but that's exhausting. That definitely is exhausting, especially when like myself, much more laid back on an interpersonal way. So then you got to dial it all the way back to the point where it's like, you know, like you said, I don't want to make a decision as far as like, what, what are we going to do for dinner? Like, I don't care. Let's just do something. Let's find. Um, but wouldn't you say, Nick, that that can be perceived by a spouse as apathetic? Like, oh, I don't, you know, they don't, it, this, the spouse is going, oh, well, he doesn't care about yeah. anything. Absolutely. And it's a great point. You know, I often cite, you know, I'm not a clinician, you know, uh, <clears throat> I, when I talk about anything having to do with mental health or I cite things, it comes from the work of Dr. John Violante or Kevin Gilmartin, uh, people that uh, I, I really have come to respect in their understanding of the uniqueness of, of law enforcement mental health. So imagine, you know, a typical law enforcement officer's personality is a type A personality. They get stuff done. They, they are trained at the academy level to overcome any sort of threat. And they're prepared from the academy on at the baseline level to go into any situation, any critical incident, knowing full well and believing that they come out of that situation with a positive outcome. They're trained to go into these situations and have to be confident enough in their abilities to, to come out with a positive outcome. Right. And when, you know, as Dr. John Violante discusses, when you get out of the academy, you leave the academy with this illusion of invulnerability. And when the impacts of trauma start to permeate into their life or an officer or deputy gets injured or something happens to their colleague and they realize that they are susceptible, they are vulnerable to the impacts of trauma. It shatters the illusion. It breaks that illusion of invulnerability. And it changes the lens, as I've said to you before, the lens through which they see the world and sometimes their role within it. So when an officer is constantly at a 10 in terms of their level of hypervigilance, hypervigilance it uh, depletes their levels of resilience. And, and so law enforcement spouses, and I was just on a Zoom call last night with a group. Uh, a, a Leo spouse group. And this was also one of the themes in that where the perception sometimes in our experience is that the Leo spouse becomes, um, as they're watching changes in their Leo spouse, that's a deputy or an officer. They see when they become withdrawn or isolated, uh, not wanting to make decisions. It's interpreted by them sometimes, as they don't care, they're apathetic, mm -hmm. uh, they're insensitive. Uh, and so oftentimes, in our experience, uh, the spouse will feel like they are part of the problem, or it is because of them uh, that the officer is disengaged. And that's not typically the case. It's, it's because their coping strategies have been depleted. And they're burned out and making any decision, no matter how 
uh, you know, menial it is, uh, is just something that they try to avoid off yeah. duty, right? They're, they're always fixing everyone else's problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They don't want to deal with the small things. Yeah. But, you know, you, you what you said about in the academy, we're trained to win. Um, you know, even even Street Cop, who we are we are both associated with, their company slogan is position to win. So in your mind, right, you're always thinking, hey, let's we're always going to find an outcome. We're problem solvers. By nature, we are problem solvers. So what does it do to the to the mental process when we can't solve a problem? And I'm talking about, you know, privately. Um, and that's that's the conversation that you and I had about a month ago. Uh, when I was going through my own uh, situation, you know, there were just so many things on the table and I got to the point where I was like, I don't know. I don't have the answers to this. I want the answers, but I don't have them. What does that do to this first responder type A mentality where we're so used to being the, the answer or having the answers and then we don't? Yeah. And before I answer that question, which is a great question, I just want to commend you on your uh, it's, it's very impressive and inspiring to see your vulnerability and using your own experiences, especially in this in this area and this topic. Uh, that takes a lot of strength. <clears throat> so I just wanted to say that. Um, so what does it do to the psyche of a police officer when this starts to happen? It's tough. It's very – when an officer starts to realize that something is not right, even if they can't identify what – it is. And they start understanding or coming to the realization that they're becoming disengaged or, or, or aren't part of the smallest decision-making processes within the household when they're off duty. It affects, and I'm speaking generally now, generally speaking, it affects a law enforcement officer's psyche in that, you know, cops know that they have to come out of every situation with a positive outcome. And they know all day long, they're resolving other people's problems. But when a cop doesn't know what's wrong with them and they don't understand why they're responding to life events in their personal life in a certain way, uh, it, it becomes very problematic because when they can fix everyone else's problems but not their own, right, it starts to instill a, a, a level of insecurity, mm-hmm. right? It, it starts to uh, challenge their their own self-concept of themselves, their capabilities. I can't tell you how many cops I've talked and I've, I've spoken with on the phone who are breaking down and crying, emotional, because they feel safe, right? They, they know mm-hmm. that everything is confidential. But, but, but crying because they don't know how to get up off the couch or leave the room they don't understand what, what's happening to them. And, and it's perceived because of their type A personality and being, you know, perfectionists, typically speaking, like something is ex- very wrong with them. They start to feel inadequate. Uh, and, and so what they oftentimes don't realize, it's not because of them being weak or inadequate. There's a, psychological and biological response to cumulative stress and trauma. And it goes far beyond just being tired at the end of the shift, right? There, if you read Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement by Kevin Gilmartin, 
or any of the books by Dr. John Violante, you clearly see in research and case studies time and again, what happens to the mind and the body and the entire, uh, an entire person's body when they are under constant levels of stress, levels of hypervigilance. When you're at a 10 and you're on the street and you're constantly assessing threats and you're constantly having to operate at a level of hypervigilance for officer safety and survival purposes, that adrenaline dump, that, that all the different things that happen to the body, the cortisol levels, that the toxins that are being released in the body, it affects their hormones, testosterone. There's a slew of different things that, that are affected by, by stress and, and constant exposure to critical incidents. And so when the body shuts down because the brain is trying to protect itself at the end of the day and trying to recuperate from the events that they've seen or been engaged in, um, they can start to, and typically we hear it and see it, warrior cops with tears in their eyes, unable to understand why they are experiencing or reacting or responding to life events when they're off duty. And that sets in this level of a feeling of inadequacy. And it, I w- my heart breaks for them because I, I wish more agencies would make wellness programs or strategies a priority because mm-hmm. they, they aren't weak. It's not because they're inadequate. It's a normal reaction. Right. It's a scientific reaction. Like you said, there's, there's quantitative data, there's numbers, and, and I'm going to have to do a scientific episode where we get a, get a scientist to talk about it. But, there, you know, it's different. When you give me numbers, it's like, oh, no, this isn't just because I'm feeling a certain way. No, you know, your, your test, like you say, your testosterone levels, your cortisol levels, everything's just all out of whack and is caused by all this stress that we endure. And, you know, I think the average waking cop, they're like, oh, yeah, no, I, I scan for threats. I do this. Like some of this stress that we have is very obvious. But then there's so much other stress that probably gets, I don't know, um, diminished or, or, you know, not given the proper amount. Like, oh, am I going to get this sergeant? Am I going to get this call done on time? Like little tiny stressors. But like you said, cumulative stress, it all builds up. It all carries on. And suddenly our bodies and our brains are just completely misfiring altogether. 100%. You read Dr. John V. Um, I'm sorry, Kevin Gilmartin, you see what happens to the mind and the body when they're on duty and what happens when they're off duty and the roller coaster of hypervigilance that they go through. You know, when you're on duty, you are, you got to be on point, right? You're involved, you're engaged with your department, with your partners, with the community. You've got to be on at a 10 even if you're rolling down the street, the window will roll down, there's kids playing, you, you're still scanning for threats. When you're off duty, that's when they become tired, isolated, detached, and it's not intentional. And a lot of, going back to your, your question, a lot of spouses, when this kind of thing starts happening in their, in their family structure, 
they start feeling inadequate or that they are part of what the problem is and what they don't they recognize is that the body can only take so much. Our cups become full, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the reason I'm so grateful that you're so vulnerable and, and prioritize mental health stuff is because, you know, aside from like other nonprofit organizations out there um, or phenomenal companies like Street Cop, uh, we're, we're really missing the mark mm-hmm. in that we're not in a, we're not attacking mental health on a unified front. There's no standardization across the country or within agencies on wellness programs, destigmatizing mental health programs, uh, or, or destigmatizing mental health in this profession. I often say, like, when you start looking at this, isn't just about suicide. I mean, this is the breakdown of the family structure, divorce, mm-hmm, sure, Irish behavior. Um, all of these things that bleed into the home life or even the department fail to recognize that we could save so many more costs if we started looking at at mental health and wellness as a perishable skill with every year of having training and making them aware from a psychoeducational standpoint of what they're going through and how to respond to traumatic events off duty. Yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, you, you really hit it. Um, cause yes, suicide obviously is the absolute, it's terrible and we want to avoid, we, you know, we not want to stop that. However, the other thing, and, and I'm going to reference something that I just did on the meme page, but we also need to change the culture within us, infidelity, addiction, you know, high risk behaviors, gambling, we need to change all that culture. You know, it, it's not healthy that when people think infidelity, they think cops and dispatchers, they think cops and nurses, they think cops and cops. Ha ha ha. It's funny. But at the end of the day, it's ruining families. It's ruining lives. Go ahead. No, you're, you're spot on. And, and what it's funny because I grew up in this culture where it was more acceptable when you're, you know, end of shift, to go throw some back, you know, or choir practice, you know, yeah, or yeah. debriefing, right? Or culturally acceptable to, you know, engage in extramarital affairs. I mean, it was actually like culturally acceptable at one point, yes. right? Yeah. So you, you got to think to yourself. I mean, I, I, I my, my experiences um, that I have had in my life, it, I look back now and I think to myself, it needs to be the opposite. If law enforcement agencies understood the cost of what happens with untreated trauma, workers' comp claims, um, if they started realizing that departments would save more money by investing in their employees, their people, which are the backbone of every organization, that they would save money uh, with, you know, they would avoid. If they had and embraced a culture of wellness at their agency, and if, if, if administrators understood that creating an environment where officers who are reaching out for help wasn't going to be met with some sort of punitive response, right? Where they're, let's say they're getting you know, under the influence of, of uh, prescription medication or they become chemically dependent on it. 
I have seen so many agencies and our team has seen so many agencies start the disciplinary process rather than look at this as helping them and using it as an opportunity to get them back on track. And we are throwing away people's careers and lives. Our cops are dispensable and they shouldn't be. And in my opinion, uh, the constant exposure to critical incidents and the, the, the exposure to the constant plight and suffering of community members or seeing what their partners are going through, the most heinous things that people do to one another. Our cops are seen on a daily basis. Our dispatchers are hearing it on the phone. The family members are getting the tail end of it when transferred trauma bleeds into the household, right? And it becomes like a ticking time bomb. And if we, in a unified front and approach, tackled mental health with standardization and made it a priority, we wouldn't just save lives in terms of of suicide. It would change the ball game. Mm -hmm. And the fact that so many are reaching out because they can't even trust at times their own peer support teams. And because the system is, is, is such a, our industry is such a treatment adverse industry. Mm -hmm. It, 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 it affects the continuity of a, of a police organization. And unfortunately our society, our communities are not ever going to benefit from six sick cops. Right? No, absolutely not. And you know, you have, monthly or quarterly or yearly in-service trainings. You know, you do your defensive tactics, you do your firearms, you do things like that, uh, building, clearing, stuff like that. Why can't we incorporate mental health into that mix as well? Why can't there be like, hey, this is uh, this is some services we have, we bring someone in. Or since we want to try to re-solidify uh, the family web, uh, why don't we have family day? Why don't we have something where, you know, come in, uh, for an hour of your shift, whatever, bring the wife, bring the kids, have some dinner, um, or even off duty. That would probably be the best. You know, the command staff or city manager, whoever you have, they're gonna they're gonna fry up some burgers and dogs or something. You know, why can't we have that? There's nothing in the in the policies anywhere that says that that's not applicable. It's not pro- possible. Um, I think if you start again, we do this to ourselves. You know the. The negative stuff that's happening, we did this. We're owning it. We're accepting the cultural responsibility. Well, now, you know, I feel like the new class of law enforcement, the new generation of law enforcement is much more in tune with mental health. So let's take it upon ourselves to change that. Let's make that uh, a priority. Like you're saying, let's, you know, let's start pioneering these different programs. Absolutely. And it's incumbent upon each of us in the, mm-hmm. that are still wearing the uniform, right, to make this priority and we don't always have to wait for command staff you know you can look for a real excuse my language shitty command staff or chief all right that doesn't have a a backbone or that is buckling under the political pressures of the things that we're seeing today which directly impacts operations decision making within the organization when officers are not being supported but you know what Uh, Every single cop is a leader. Every single cop that wears that uniform that goes out onto the road is a leader. They are leaders within the community. And unfortunately, we do ourselves a disservice when we as partners uh, aren't supporting one another and or are still continuing the old ways of thinking um, where it's viewed that 
you know, struggling because of a critical incident is somehow a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we actually can start to influence our immediate environment, right? We can start to have an impact within our sphere of uh, influence in our peer groups within our department. We don't have to wait for command staff. Yes. We're doing ha- healthy things that promote a culture of wellness. Why I say that is, is because the peer context of law enforcement is critically important. And how, how we view each other in the peer context is everything. Because we mm-hmm. depend on mm-hmm. each other in the job for survival purposes, right? And, and so our partners and the way they view us, unfortunately, leads to why stigma is so prevalent. Why would anyone want to reach out in a culture that looks at mental health so negatively? I do agree with you that the new generation is absolutely going to be a game changer for this industry over the course of time. But, But we do need departments to start to prioritize mental health and, and embracing and, and, you know, creating a culture of wellness. Because when I've seen this at agencies, it's been, it's amazing to see how open people are and they've normalized getting help rather than shunning it. And our peers, when we shun our partner's pain and make them feel inadequate, if they are somehow affected by a critical incident, yet we're not right. Mm-hmm. We do ourselves a disservice by making them feel at times inadequate. And I, I'm yes. speaking generally. Of course, of course. Now, Nick, I, you know, this idea of peer to peer support um, starting, you know, on the inner squad level, um, it actually stemmed from a conversation I had with a colleague of mine, and he's up for promotion. And one of the ideas he wanted to bring to the chief were these family days, you know, instead of just having a shift dinner every Sunday or whatever it is let's all chip in five bucks a week. And then eventually we'll, you know, go do something as a squad. All these are great. Um, Have you seen in these peer to peer support driven agencies or the ones that are becoming more, uh, they prioritize them more. How have you seen the morale of the agency change? Cause what I've noticed is that when I get to know my shift mates families and I know they're, you know, how they're feeling, what they're thinking, well, it makes me want to do more for them because now it's not just a job about me. It's a job about we. 100%. Great question. Look, peer support is vital, okay? But it doesn't always work. And every agency is different depending on size and the culture at the agency, how they've selected their peer support team. Is the peer support team uh, a comprised of a bunch of cops who are using it as a resume builder? Are they really there for the right reasons? Uh, how, the selection process, what the procedures are, confidentiality uh, protocols, all these things matter in terms of the success of a peer support team. But to answer your question more specifically, I have seen when, when peer support works and when mental health is embraced and there's a culture of wellness at an agency, I have seen morale. It's night and day. You go to one agency, uh, like when I was just up in Northern California, I was so surprised at how open this group of cops were at this agency, Canole. I was so surprised at what I saw 
in terms of how much each of them accepted one another and how vulnerable they were in the class. You go down to maybe a neighboring agency, these things are so shunned. So the cultural difference is, is astounding, but the morale and the continuity of an organization, their operations, how effective they are, um, all of it, to include the family structures and the family engagement within the department increases morale unbelievably. Indiana, I'm, I'm going street cop, I've got a, a street cop class uh, in Fishers, Indiana. And the chief there is uh, Ed Gephardt, an amazing man. And what I have seen him do in the last year, year and a half, with some of his the troops, they were dealing with some stuff. And what, how I've seen him uh, become so engaged and, and inviting the families into the department and, and having family, uh, that the, the family component, which is a pillar of wellness. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's unbelievable how the morale changes. But um, you know why at times this affects morale when there's not a culture of wellness? Because at times it is viewed by the cop who's struggling if they can't reach out for help as a sign of betrayal, whether it's real or perceived. How can any cop really, let's be real here, how can any cop in 2021 after everything that's gone on and everything happening in the world be unaffected and not, not be, how can they not be, um, how can they continue going without having a bad day or a bad period of time in their life? Or it's not even reasonable to assume that anyone could be unaffected by these things. So why aren't we helping them get them back up on their feet, support them? Because you know what? They broke their leg or their hand or their back in a foot pursuit or vehicle pursuit. They'd be viewed as warrior heroes that are visited in the hospital every day. But you take that same person who it's a psychological injury. Yep. Some agencies, they don't want to touch that person with a 10-foot full pole. And they start viewing the officer who's affected by traumatic events as a liability. Yeah, and, and absolutely. Who wants, who wants to work for that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've even seen that. Uh, firsthand in a different way, uh, a, neighbor, a neighboring agency, uh, one of their officers committed suicide. And um, where I was professionally, I had worked a couple operations with him. I've, I've taken a couple training classes with him. And uh, his agency gave him a full law enforcement funeral uh, with the, the gun salute and the flag and all these things. And um, it, was, it was very, very special. But I had a supervisor in my own agency when we were going say, Oh, that's, that's a strange thing that they're doing all that because it's not a line of duty injury. And I was like, it was most definitely a line of duty injury. I was like, this all happened, whatever. I don't know what he had going on. I wasn't close enough to the man to know, but I'm sure that everything that, that culminate uh, came together from law enforcement definitely, unfortunately impacted him to that point of that tragic moment. So, you know, it's good on his agency for honoring him and honoring the sacrifice because that's exactly what it was. But it shows the, um, you know, the um, the generational gap between the supervisor I spoke to from the old school mentality of, you know, we don't talk about mental health. We don't talk about suicide to the situation that we had to deal with. It's so true. And you're bringing up a great 
great point that I wish was a little bit more embraced around the country. And here's what I mean by that. We should never glamorize suicide. No. Uh, we should ne- And By the way, you know, I have to say, unfortunately, there are, there are organizations out there that are not doing the right things for the right reasons and are adding to the problem because sometimes we see that they're exploiting law enforcement suicide or mm-hmm. mental health stuff. Here's my, here's my, after everything I've experienced in my own life and, you know, everything that we're seeing and everything I'm experiencing with the calls we get and our team, um, when a cop deals with cumulative stress and trauma, untreated trauma, right? Absent mitigating circumstances. And I'm not talking about a cop that it's got no moral compass or doesn't deserve to wear the badge or Mm -hmm. rubber-coated. So I take all that shit out. When you got someone who literally is affected by cumulative stress and trauma, and now we can see brain scans where the brain is actually the brain that's affected by traumatic events, you start seeing the abnormalities. That's a physical, something tangible now we can see where it's not just some, you know, it's just, it's not just a feeling. It's like, we're now seeing the changes, the prefrontal cortex and the different parts of the brain that are affected from cumulative stress and trauma. And it's stigma that prevents them from getting help or the fear of retribution or what would happen in their career if they reach out for help. And it's a direct cause and we're seeing it's a direct cause from what they've experienced how in the hell do we not see that as a line of duty death we should honor their lives we should honor how they lived because um you know absent you know this last year and everything that's gone on around the country where cops are dying by gunfire now uh at, at an astronomically disgustingly high rate uh, and the violence towards our cops is is grotesque, you know. So take this last year out. The last four years, more cops have died by their own hands than in the line of duty, right? And typically speaking, whether and we're not even counting the retirees, right? We're talking really squared away people who have lost their way. They want that pain to stop, and most of the time their partners or anyone that knows these people who have died by suicide are scratching their heads thinking, I never, I, it's the yes. last person I ever would have thought. They were mm-hmm. both happy-go-lucky, uh, warrior, great cop. What happened? Well, that part of the brain, that prefrontal cortex and all the different things that happen psychologically, the irrational part of the brain is what makes anyone who dies by suicide suggest that suicide is an actual option. That's the yeah. rational part of their brain. And so they've gone into this career after passing their MMPI, all the different psychological testing, their backgrounds, right? They go in, basically have to be, you know, clean whistle here. How is it that they change so drastically, whether it's in their behavior, absenteeism, uh, inappropriate or, or uses of force, um, you start to see the decline because they're affected by trauma. And I'm speaking generally, I'm not speaking all the time, right? I'm speaking generally speaking. When they lose their way and they want that pain to stop, suicide becomes an option. That's, that's the, the issue of suffering and silence mm-hmm. is a very real thing. And it's, it's, it's amazing to me that 
so many agents, agencies are so far behind in terms of discussing this or, or normalizing it. You look at like maybe the New England area in, in, the, in the country, right? Or some places on the East Coast, agencies, if it's free and offered free, refuse mm-hmm. to have or host a wellness class. And you got to ask, yeah. why would they refuse to host a wellness class if it's free? That's, I mean, so leadership is going to dictate the way that this industry goes. But we unfortunately have to do our best as cops, especially with our partners, to sidestep leadership that doesn't embrace wellness to be there for our partners. We don't have yeah. to wait for command staff. And you're, you're absolutely right. And I really hope, and I actually, I say with some confidence, um, I'm sure there are future law enforcement leadership listening to this right now. I know there's, you know, current sergeants who are going to be lieutenants, some lieutenants that are going to make captains, some captains that are going to make chief and so on. And all the way down to just the brand new guy or a police explorer that's looking into this. And that's what I was meaning when I said earlier, like we can change this culture. Obviously, you know, some of the, some of the old time thinking, the guys who have been there say, oh, we've always done it this way. And that, ex- that can go from how we do car stops to how we treat mental health. You know, they are on their way out, so to speak. It is up to people like you and I, Nick, and, and hopefully the, the, progressive, the progressively thinking listeners to change that culture. It takes a village. It takes a village. It can't be one person or organization. Right, right. It's got to be a group and a collective effort to create a, that, that kind of momentum to actually change. That's why I'm so like, and I, can I just say something real quick? I, yeah. I, I have to just give a shout out to my team, our team at the resiliency project. And I know, you know, it's not just because it's our, our organization, but the sacrifices I see them making on a daily basis to support our first responders and their spouses is the most inspiring thing I've ever seen. And I, I just have to just do a quick shout out and thank them sure. I've that before, but the, the calls that we're getting and the, the level of, of work that they're putting in on their own time is unbelievable. But that's also why I'm so grateful to Street Cop Training. They brought me on as, a, as an instructor to teach my class uh, for them. And, and the fact that they have embraced mental health, especially in that region. Mm-hmm. When you get to know these other instructors, I mean, these people are battle-tested warriors who are absolutely experts in their area so for them to embrace wellness and mental sure. health stuff is inspiring but uh, so i just had to say that because uh it's important i think to acknowledge that another thing that's inspiring i get so many messages now from maybe like you were saying sergeants you know middle management um people who are are trying to put, who are actually contacting us because they genuinely care and want to know how to start a wellness program or a peer support team at their agency. You start to, you're starting to see like the pendulum swing a little bit, but the common theme that we also get in those calls is the frustration that they're experiencing because they're putting all this time, effort, energy into trying to create something to help change their agency and, and, and help their troops with mental health stuff but command staff not buying up, buying in on it and yeah, not yeah. it. And you got to start asking yourself, you know, if that's, if that's the case and you're working for an agency that doesn't embrace mental health, you got to start asking yourself, 
if being there or working for an agency like that is worth it. Yep. And that's, you know, I've, um, so as we're speaking right now, I'm technically unemployed, uh, but I'm going to start a new job in a few weeks. So a lot of people have asked me different things about transitioning to a new agency. I've got six years on. Um, a lot of people were like, I can't believe you're leaving. Uh, my, my leaving was totally personal, my personal life. But since people have asked me, or since people have started asking me, they're always like, oh, did you chase money? Did you chase, you know, more proactivity, blah, blah, blah. What I've been saying is it comes down to philosophy, your own personal philosophy. You got to make sure all the boxes are checked. It cannot be a singular thing. It can't be, oh, I'm going to get paid more here because that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter who's the boss. Like, oh, if this guy is the sheriff, I got to work for him. He's going to retire in a few years. Like, that's just what's going to happen. What you need to do, is write down either literally or in your mind what you want, what is important to you. And don't don't narrow it down to just law enforcement things. Obviously, if the culture is there as far as the mental health or the, the way they do their work or things like that, that what you're saying it is exactly how you need to see it. If your current agency is not checking enough boxes for you, maybe it's time to move along. A hundred percent to build on that especially if a cop is in the business for the right reasons, right? They want to go out there. They're not just sitting there sitting at, at a stop sign, uh, writing tickets for, for, you know, rollers, you know, they're, they're out there. They're trying to effectuate change. They're trying to arrest criminal offenders. They're trying to prevent crime from happening in the community. But on a micro level from a command staff and leadership perspective, as it relates to mental health and trying to determine whether the agency is the right fit for you if you're being told, because this certainly impacts mental health, if you're being told, don't go out there, don't do anything proactive, or 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 they they don't want you to. I mean, there's agencies now, officers aren't allowed to get into vehicle pursuits if it's a legit, mm-hmm. you know, foot pursuits, you know, yeah. places in the country where, uh, you know, Terry stops are essentially out the window. Qualified immunity, right? All of these things matter. There's there's agencies that are so quick to hand over a use of force of one by one of their officers to the DA's office, or on political witch hunts to prosecute cops. Yeah, and those aren't agencies that, you know, th- this is a, supposed to be an apolitical career. But all these things impact mental health. If you're if you feel like you leave the, the station to go hit the road and you're not going to be supported, right? That that has huge impacts on mental health. Absolutely, absolutely. It comes up to the point of like, why even do this? What, what is worth that sacrifice? And, um, you know, when I, when I speak to Jenna Rose next week, that's exactly what we talked about. Um, and I go more into it, but basically saying that, um, you know, I was, unfortunately a, a buddy of mine was involved in a shooting and the whole, what is this worth the sacrifice that came up and, You've got to, you've got to see, you know, it comes down to everything you just said. Like, does my agency, does my city support me and support the type of work I want to do? And if shit hits the fan, will they have my back or are they going to throw me under the bus? That is the most important thing. And, and as I was looking at my new agency or looking for my new agency, one of the most important questions I asked cops that work there is, What's the admin like? What is the culture there? Are they going to support me? Absolutely. And this has everything to do with mental health. It's just, it's just not really verbalized or yes. acknowledged. 
So let's let, let take it a little bit deeper. I mean, I'm the first, like, I don't, I've never supported. I'm not one of those guys that's like, hey, man, if you're a cop, man, I got your back till the end of the day. No, like, if you do something heinous, egregious, you're involved in crimes of moral turpitude, like, you don't deserve, you're tarnishing the badge, right? Yes. You don't need cops like that in this country, okay? But when you see cops who are doing their jobs, you look at cases like Matthew Degas in, in, in San Diego County and what's going on with him and how much his wife is going to bat trying to be a voice for him in his defense, irrespective of how you look at the case. I mean, if you got a DA's office who's not charging the suspect in the case, right. involved in a pursuit, they're making that just go away. But this guy's being fanged because the city burned down because of an incident at a trolley station. Who the hell is going to want to go back to that trolley station on that detail from that department? These things, unfortunately, have to be talked about. I think that this profession is supposed to be apolitical. You go back to Sir Robert Peel. These things are the principles of law enforcement to be to exercise neutrality. But when you start to see that decisions are being made because of optics and political pressures this affects our cops and if they're discouraged in using force i mean the stories we're hearing how about chicago pd yeah how about what the hell is going on in chicago i'd like to know there's a a lot i wish i could say but i would (laughs) say like there are agencies in this country and 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 cities in this country that need to be completely revamped from the absolutely yep they need to be you know metaphorically uh, burned to the ground and started from the studs. Um, absolutely. absolutely. Right. Not- our perspective in the, these cases, and this is what our team con- consistently says, like we look, whatever is going on in the country and however you perceive what, what's going on in this country, you know, that there, there does seem to be a disparity in, in that old adage of equal justice under the law. Um, I would say this, we have to be able to acknowledge that this is a strange time. Our perspective is critical, not worrying about the things that we cannot control uh, and letting go of those things that we cannot control and only focusing on those things we can't control. Reprioritizing what is important to you in your life. Understanding that a work-life balance is critical for survival. Understanding that maintaining a healthy balance and your social structure and becoming more engaged in family, which in terms of post-traumatic stress or the impacts of trauma, your social structures, your family structure is critical for healing. If we we start prioritizing these things and start finding more value and purpose in our lives, let's tune out the noise. Let's tune out the noise of what's going on and make our own lives the best it can be and lean on each other as partners to make sure that the other person's good and that that and and not just you know buddy checking them out hey you good no step into it start being there for your partner because you know i if you're you know being there for your partner it doesn't mean just rolling code three to a your partner's in a foot pursuit or a fight or a vehicle pursuit that that doesn't just that's not that's happening. not it that's not it's, enough it's not the full thing no yeah no yeah. check on your partners be there show up at their houses bring them lunch they're off on injury even if it's for um anything having to do with sex be there for them yeah absolutely you're you're, you're absolutely right 
what I really liked what you said, um, focus on what we can control, what we can, we have, we can make change of. I'm a big, big student of stoic philosophy. And that's one of the key uh, proponents of it is, you know, only focusing your energy on what you can control um, because everything else is just, my dad used to say, you're wasting a good worry. No, you're right. I, I would, and you know, like I always laugh when I talk about this, because if you, if you knew me when I was working and you know what my mindset was, I was part of the problem in law enforcement, like mm. very judgmental industry. And I was very, very judgmental. And I, so I was part of the problem. Right. But we start, I always laugh because if you knew me then, you'd never think I'd be talking about these things here. But I, I'm, I'm serious, man. Self-care is a lifesaver. Mm-hmm. Meditation, for me, prayer, anything spirituality, becoming connected and grounded. Right. Right. And focusing on, I mean, the value it adds to your life. So for me, like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life healing. Like, my healing journey will never end. So, you know, I get stressed. I, you know, things from the past triggered the hell out of me sometimes, right? Um, I struggle with the visibility. I don't necessarily, it gets just doing podcasts and stuff like that. Like, I, I, I'm just not, right? I just understand that it has to be done because we have to help change this culture together, all of us. But for me, I spend countless hours meditating, walking, exercising my my mind and challenging myself and trying to relax and then you know looking beyond what's what's going on and focusing on what's just right mindfulness you know practicing mindfulness practicing an attitude of gratitude and we're we're in a time where our cops need healing our first responder community needs healing we have to start tuning out the noise and the things that are going on. It is difficult, though, because it's mm. so disappointing to see some of the things that we're seeing, both, you know, domestically and internationally. Yes. And so, um, you know, what's going on around the world has certainly impacted our cops who are veterans, who have served, right? This is a challenging time for them, right? Um, and it's not to be political, but it's to just as a reminder to only focus on what we can control because you waste so much time going down rabbit holes or giving your power away or your attention to things that at the end of the day, like it's, it's not going to, it's not going to make things better for you. We have to make ourselves the priority. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, everything we have talked about this afternoon, Nick has been so important, so poignant and, you know, just, Every time I talk to you, I feel like I learned ten thousand new things, and I really appreciate Likewise. that. We're gonna we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be wrapping up here momentarily. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your wisdom and insight. If anybody wants to get in contact with you or the Resiliency Project, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, they can uh, check out our our Instagram is uh, the underscore Resiliency Project. Uh, our website is the Resiliency Project uh, dot info. Uh, and same on on Facebook, uh, so they can contact us. They can get support through there through the website. And um, I, I'm grateful to you. I'm grateful that you're using your platform as a driving force for good, and that you have made this such an important topic uh, because uh, we need more of what you're doing in this country to normalize the things that have typically been viewed as taboo. But this is the law enforcement elephant in the room. 
and mm-hmm. we're part of this culture change. And I'm so grateful to you for that and for the opportunity um, to share some of this stuff. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Everybody, again, Nick Wilson, I'm sure we're going to be speaking to him in the future. I just, I can't get enough. So uh, once again, Nick, thank you so much. Everybody listening, stay tuned. We'll be right back to wrap this up. Fuck you if you love a car for his paint job. Love you if you love a car for the road trips. Show me the mouths and your arms and the pink scar. Where the doctor had to pull out all the bone shifts. Cause you were pressing in the gas just a bit hard. Right in the moment when the road curved a bit sharp. And when you woke up, somebody wasn't clipping your seatbelt and pulling you from the open window of your flipped car. officer or agency out there would like to host the resiliency project through street cop training you can contact nick wilson directly at the resiliency project contacts that he just mentioned or street cop training at streetcop.com just reach out and get them in your area especially east coast that's what nick says is kind of lacking in the resiliency project movement so reach out and get it done great resources great training and honestly nick wilson's just an amazing guy so you know, you should want to meet him for that reason alone, honestly. I really hope you guys were able to take something away from today's conversation with Nick. Um, I've said it before, Nick heads the Resiliency Project, and I think it's just so fitting that he tailors his program to the men and women in the first responder community because obviously we are resilient. Um, and it's really a good reminder that if there is a crack in your armor, you are not broken. You just need to be mended. And I've said it before and I'll say it forever. No one in this family fights alone. So really, if you need resources, you just need to talk. Reach out to myself, Nick. There's so many different resources out there. You need to do it. So that's basically the end of our conversation and our episode today. Thank you again so much to everybody that has been so supportive of the 10 Entertainment slash memes movement. Thank you guys for being um, patient during my hiatus. But we are back and better than ever, baby. So happy to be back. Uh, also, I want to thank everybody during my dark times when everyone would reach out and you know check on me. I really appreciate that too. Um, you know, this little Instagram community, internet community, I never would have expected it and i'm so happy that it exists so again thank you so much for all that what we are going to do i was going to do it as part of our weekly episodes but that would get to be a little too much i have a new mini episode uh 
thing coming. I don't know what it's called yet. I don't I don't really have it yet. But one of the features of it is going to be the 10-8 Top 50, where I'm going to interview cops from all around the 50 states and give you an idea of what copping is like where they are. The first, ep- first conversation I'm going to have is with a guy from Delaware. And we're just going to go 1 through 50, all the states, as they became part of the union. And then eventually, actually probably before we complete all 50 states, we're going to have a conversation with people from, uh, law enforcement people from different countries. Yes, 10-8 International is going to be a thing. I'm putting it into existence. Uh, I have a conversation lined up with a guy from Germany and working on one from England and one from Ireland. I think Australia is going to get in on it. And we'll keep going. Dude, I will download Google Translate and I will make it happen. I'm just so happy. Uh, So happy to be reaching all these people and just having these conversations. That's literally the best part of doing the meme page and doing the podcast is just getting to talk to these people. People like you. Yes, if you're still listening, I'm so glad to be talking to you. Whatever your name is, thank you so much for listening, guys. Thanks for hanging out. The music for today, every week we're going to start with Stay by Kid Leroy. I don't, I don't know how to say that name. And Justin Bieber. Every week we're going to start with that until I switch it. I have something planned. It's just not ready yet. Um, then we went to Astronaut by Simple Plan. Then we went to Sloppy Seconds by Watsky, which, by the way, I so I kept that. Usually I cut the song, like, right after the first chorus, but I left this one playing a little bit longer because what he says in the second verse really tied into what I'm trying to get across this week as the message. And it's just a good song. I found that song years ago. I'm talking like probably 10 plus years ago, um, on Sirius XM. No, probably not that long ago, but I found it a while ago. So it was, it's a good song. So hopefully you guys have checked out Watsky. If not, uh, if you guys like what you're listening to, as far as music from the show, is all going to be put on the 10-8 pod, or sorry, 10-8 playlist, which is on Spotify. Just look up 10-8 music, and it'll be there. And you know, you can just jam out to what I jam out to, whether it's songs from here or just songs that I like. So, just another piece of 10-8 entertainment I'm giving you. You're very welcome. Next week, we're going to be joined by Jenna Romano, also a street cop instructor. Go figure. And we're going to be talking about the identity crisis. That's something that I dealt with um, over the summer. I had an identity crisis, and hopefully, again, my story will help you guys out too. That's going to do it for our show today, guys. Thank you so much once again for hanging out. If you're liking what you're hearing, rate, review, subscribe. Tell your people to check out my show. Share it with anybody you know. And I really appreciate it. Check us out at 108 underscore memes on Instagram. As always, we're going to be wrapping it up today with an oration by Mr. Tom Rizzo. And he's going to be reading this that came from the Havoc Journal, uh, a page on Instagram. Just when I read it for the first time, it was shared by my buddy Frank Castle. Um, It's absolutely amazing and oddly fitting for today's episode. So enjoy. Take care of each other. Stay safe. And we will see you next week. 108 out. Those who fight monsters inevitably change. Because of all that they see and do, they lose their innocence and a piece of their humanity with it. If they want to survive, they begin to adopt some of the same characteristics as the monsters they fight. It is necessary. They become capable of rage and extreme violence. There is a fundamental difference, however, You see, they keep those monster tendencies locked away in a cage, deep inside. That monster is only allowed out to protect others, to accomplish the mission, to get the job done. 
not for the perverse pleasure that the monsters feel and harm others. In fact, those monster tendencies cause damage. Guilt, isolation, depression, PTSD. There is a cost for visiting violence on others when you are not a monster. Those who do so know one thing. The cost inflicted upon society as a whole is far greater without those who fight monsters. That is why we are willing to make that horrible sacrifice so others may live peaceably. Before you judge one of us, remember this. We witness things that humans aren't meant to see and we see them repeatedly. We perform the duties that you feel are beneath you. We solve your problems, often by visiting violence upon others. We run towards the things that you run away from. We go out to fight what you fear. We stand between you and the monsters that want to damage you. You want to pretend that they don't exist, but we know better. The current political climate holds that there is nothing worth fighting for. Submission is the popular mantra. Warriors are decried, denigrated, and cast as morally inferior. We know how childish, how asinine, and how cowardly that mindset is. There are things worth fighting and dying for. We know that not every problem can be solved through rational discourse, that some problems can only be solved through the application of force and violence. While we do prefer the former, we are perfectly capable of the latter. We believe that fighting what others fear is honorable, noble, and just. They are willing to pay that price for that deeply held belief. Why? For us. It isn't a choice. It is what we are. We are simply built for it.